Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Managing Editor Medea Ocher and LARB Editor-at-Large Kate Wolf. Hi, Medea and Kate. Hi. Hello. Today we have a conversation with the brilliant and sonorous Jeff Dyer, (laughs) author of Broadsword Calling Danny Boy on Where Eagles Dare, which is his kind of reflections on both his childhood love of this particular movie, Where Eagles Dare, as well as just, I think, some great kind of scene-by-scene film criticism. So the plot of the film, and now I have not watched the film, and after I finished reading the book, I thought, you know, in fact, I probably didn't really need to. But as far as I can tell from the book, the plot of the movie is that a group of spies during World War II, spies and special military agents, Mm -hmm. led by Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood as the American, go behind enemy lines into a German town where they are tasked with rescuing a captured officer from the Germans who's being held in a fortress-like castle at the top of a mountain, which can only be accessed by cable cars or something. And, you know, lots of twists and turns ensue and a lot of drinking by Richard Burton. (laughs) (laughs) And squinting and squinting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was also wonderful. And I think that listeners will catch this from our conversation with Jeff just how deeply passionate he was about the movie like that it's a it's a kind of guilty pleasure that he's had ever since he was a child and i just love when people can talk really intelligently and thoughtfully about things that are kind of more just like mass cultural media but that nonetheless they kind of have this deep felt long affection for and lots of other people like this movie too yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's, not, it's just not just him yeah, yeah it's true he was very eloquent All right. Well, let's dispense with my own ineloquence and get to Jeff's eloquence. (laughs) Said so eloquently. Oh, okay. (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it. It is our pleasure to have Jeff Dyer with us in the studio today. Jeff is a novelist, essayist, and critic whose sharp, thoughtful, and witty prose has won him numerous awards, including the National Book Critics Circle Award, which he won for his essay collection, otherwise known as The Human Condition. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, Broadsword Calling Danny Boy, On Where Eagles Dare, a personal reflection and scene-by-scene romp through the 1968 Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer World War II film starring Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood as two American army men shooting their way behind enemy lines to rescue a captured soldier. Jeff's reflections on the film are by turns a lesson in capturing the particular magic of technicolor cinema, though I guess I should say metro color, (laughs) as well as a lesson in observation and in delightfully mocking the artworks that one nonetheless loves. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Oh, thank you. I must offer a slight correction to your summary of the film. Clint Eastwood is the only American soldier there. He's helping out what is a basically British operation. But anyway, we in Britain are used to being told that actually it was America that won the Second World War with a tiny little contribution from the Soviet Union and, uh, and our gallant little island. This is in fact why we brought you here. Yeah. Right, exactly. Just to reiterate that Rubbing point. In your face. And Americans love nothing more than being corrected by Brits. <laughs> I thought you would like it. You know, yeah. Do you mind actually, because your prose is so distinctive, would you mind just reading a quick paragraph or something so that our listeners can get a flavor for it? Yeah, with great pleasure. 
So this is a scene from, they're in the town, the German town. They're all dressed up in their German uniforms, trying to blend in. Thus arrayed, like any bunch of lads on a stag weekend, they head into the village of Werfen for a bit of the old apres ski. Minus the skiing. A little apprehensive, naturally, this being their first night out on the streets of the resort. The pitched roofs are laden with snow, the streets are bustling with troops and vehicles, and there's so much parping of horns it sounds like an alpine equivalent of Cairo. They choose a tavern at random. We'll try this one behind us, says Burton, though as with most things, he's not saying, but ordering. He tells them to keep their eyes open for anything about General Carnaby, but it seems a lame excuse for that which needs no excuse, namely getting into the bar and getting a few down them. It's a cosy place with foaming steins, a really festive Bavarian atmosphere, and no obviously anti-Semitic conversation. You can't help thinking what fun it would be to attend a fancy dress party like this in real life, even though you'd catch hell from the tabloids, obviously, especially since the guests include none other than the blonde beast von Harpen in his medal-bedecked Gestapo costume. For once, Burton is not the one doing the ordering. It's Eastwood who orders drinks at the bar, thereby raising the possibility that, for all his swagger, command and much publicised love of drink and his willingness to splash out vast sums of money on diamonds, Burton might be that lowest, most treacherous form of British life, a round dodger, a conscientious drink-buying objector, an all-round round shirker. Even this suspicion only slightly clouds the rest of the group's belief that this is surely the best of all Second World War capers, way better than scaling the cliffs of Navarone, sweating your malarial bollocks off on that ghastly bridge over the River Kwai, or waiting for Telly Savalas to flip his sicko lid in the dirty dozen. That's great. Thank you so much. I hope that listeners can kind of hear in that description the really incredible way that I think you write about visuals, by which I mean the way that you capture in prose what one sees on the screen in film, which is actually quite difficult to do, I think. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you can talk about how you translate the visual into the literary. You're absolutely right that I do it rather brilliantly. (laughs) (laughs) I meant, actually, that your summary of what I do is absolutely correct. And what I'm doing is that thing that always bores the crap out of me when people are lobbying on behalf of a film, when they summarize the plot for me. And as Mm -hmm. soon as somebody starts summarizing the plot, I just tune out. But that's what I've done in these two books about films that I've done. I've summarized Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker from beginning to end. And I've summarized this one. I think it might be because as a novelist, I've been so hampered by not being able to think of plots for myself. I feel I'm playing to my strength if I'm just sort of hitching my cart to somebody else's pony, (laughs) pony in the sense of plot, you know, and depending on various sequences. Yeah, I might go into some of the technical ways in which things are filmed, but the main thing is for it to be a freestanding thing in its own work. Its value isn't going to be summed up by how valuable it is as a commentary on the film. It has to Mm. stand as a book on its own right, I think. And this is an action film that you're writing about, so I think it's also that you're kind of slowing down the film, that what you're doing is by writing out what's happening as opposed to how quickly it would unfurl on film, you're translating it, but you're also kind of changing it to some degree. That's right. For events, I've done this in London, there's bits where I've shown the film, bits of the film, 
on screen with the volume turned down, and then I read the relevant passages over. And that works really well. And of course, it can't unfold. The two can't be exactly in parallel, but they unfold roughly in real time, but with a bit of sort of Steve Reichian sinking or phasing rather, whereby sometimes the narration will be ahead of what's being seen on screen. Other times it'll lag slightly behind. Then there'll be bits where it's absolutely in sync. I think probably, I haven't checked it, but I think this book does unfold in real time in that I think it takes roughly the same amount of time to read as it does for the film to play. It was something with the Stalker book. For a while, I was really trying to do that. The Stalker film is very, very long. It's about two hours and 40 minutes. And then I realized at one point that any slight gain in having the book being, you know, pretty much the same length as the film was offset by the way that as the book got longer, it would be necessary to read more and more quickly, which would be singularly inappropriate for a film that unfolds as slowly as Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker. What brought you to the film in the first place? You explain this a little bit in the book. You saw it as a child. Yeah, what brought me to the film? My mum and dad. Your mum and dad brought you to the film. It's like Philip Larkin says, you know, they tuck you up, your mum and dad, and they also (laughs) take you to the cinema. They do, (laughs) and they make you watch a Burton Clint Eastwood movie that you later write about. Why did you write about it? Well, I have to go back to, again, to the Stalker film, which I first saw when I was about 21, 22. That's renowned as one of the, you know, Everests of art films. You know, it's a real test of your filmic stamina and appreciation. Can you survive in the thin air of Tarkovsky's zone like that? And really, that was the only film I would ever write about because it meant so much to me. But even as I said that, I was conscious that there was this other film, Where Eagles Dare, not a work of high seriousness in the way that Stalker is. And... What distinguishes it, I think, from other films that I saw as a kid in that, you know, another film that I liked a lot when I was 10, The Italian Job, a caper film with Michael Caine, really good fun. And of course, if it happens to be on the TV when you come home drunk from the pub, you can watch it. But you're always having to make allowances for it because it was just a stupid film you saw as a kid. What I was struck by with Where Eagles Dare is that however often I saw it, I would always become completely engrossed in it. So although it's really not a work to sit alongside a film by Herzog or Antonioni or anything like that, I realized there must be something special about it for it to have this hold, not just on me, but so many people. Because, yeah, I never make allowances for it. And I think probably there are no really elaborate trick shots such as you get in Antonioni's The Passenger, the famous shot where it goes out of the window and round the block and back into the house. But I think Brian G. Hutton, it's got a kind of rhythm to it, a flow. And I think that's one of the reasons why whenever I start watching it, I find it very difficult to stop watching it until the end, which is all the more remarkable given that it's action and plot driven. And I think it's fair to say that I do know the plot pretty well off by heart now. There's something about the pacing of the film where Mm. so much happens. In the book, I felt like there was a subtle dismissal of movies where not that much happens. Like Vim Vendors, or you talk about Celine and Julie mm. go boating, or mm. other art house films that you watch in your 20s. And I feel like, in some ways, you're arguing for the dominance of Where Eagles Dare because of its plot drivenness, because so much happens. Would you say well, that's accurate at all? No, I wouldn't. I would say that's an entirely false representation of my <laughs> position because my first book was about a film that, in which famously little happens Tarkovsky's Stalker. 
And I can think of many films, a lot of those Antonioni films where very little happens. Generally, I would say my position is this. When people say a film by Tarkovsky or Antonioni or whoever, if anyone says those films are boring, I always reply, oh no, to me, a boring film is something like the Bourne Ultimatum or these action-driven films. I would say I'm action films to me tend to be a bore, which again makes me think there is something really special about this one. I also do really, I mean, I have nothing personal against Vim Vendors, and I have a great admiration for him. It's that one particular film, Till the End of the World, which seems to me so utterly dreadful, and which in many ways is the kind of, it represents some kind of catastrophic endpoint of what can happen when you get that combination of a sort of art house sensibility and a limitless budget. The earlier Vendors films were so much better, I think partly because of the limitations to self-indulgence that were imposed by budget. But yeah, I'd always be a defender of art house films. Goodness mm-hmm. me, that's what I'd spent my 20s watching. I'm wondering, as I was reading it, there's moments that you pull out, particularly within your readings of Clint Eastwood, which, and I'm paraphrasing now, but there's a great moment where you <laughs> describe... Clint Eastwood squinting, Mm. and you say that this may in fact be his only facial register as an actor, (laughs) and that even when they're behind enemy lines and they're dressed up as Germans, that you imagine he's also squinting in German. Yes, right. So you pull out these kind of camp details, and I'm wondering if you're a kind of humorous relationship to it. So you know how like camp, for example, is you make fun of something, but you are also very much attached to it. Like, that's the reason you're making fun of it. And I wonder if it's those kind of details, like where there's a strange seriousness or something Mm -hmm. like that in this film, kind of binds you to it, even as, as you're saying, it doesn't have any kind of real weighty intellectual merit. Yeah, I think you've really got to the heart of it. I mean, several things. When the Tarkovsky book came out, there were some objections to it because, of course... There's a tone in that book which was considered an inappropriate way of discussing this sort of Saint Tolstoyevsky kind Mm. of figure. But the epigraph in that book is from Camus who says somewhere something like, the only way to talk about something you love is to talk about it lightly. So there's that. Tarkovsky in particular is talked about with such reverence. Mm. And I think it's fair to say I don't have a reverential bone in my body. And in the course (laughs) of writing that book, I really did become vehement in my objection to any kind of reverence as an investigative tool. It's absolutely worthless. What do you do if you revere something? You just get on your knees and worship it. Mm. Whereas it seems to me that if you, although I have no capacity for revering, I have a great capacity for loving and admiring. And it seems to me if you love and admire things, then you're always, you're always asking yourself, oh, you know, what is it? that I love a, it's like the Shakespeare, shall I compare thee to a summer, you know, just that great mm. list of all these things that he loves. So that's what's going on there, I think. Well, I could, there's much to say about this. I think it's this notion, which I think I get it wrong in one of the other books where I quote somebody as saying, you know, what is the opposite of funny? And the opposite of funny is not serious. The opposite of funny is not funny. Uh, It's G.K. Chesterton who said that, though in one of the books I misattribute it to David Sedaris. So the crucial thing for me actually is that being funny is entirely compatible with being serious. Mm. In a film like this, where I'm really quite serious about my admiration for it, it would be utterly inappropriate if I discussed it in 
terms of sort of George Steinerian kind of solemnity. Right, some august film. That's right. And I think the way that I've written about these two films, Stalker and Where Eagles Dare, seems to me in the choice, there's also a sort of stylistic similarity. There's a sort of stylistic equivalent with that in that I'll tend to make a serious point and then immediately undercut it with a gag. I like doing that, but what I really like to do is to write something and people are not sure whether it's serious or a joke. That seems to me... Is that that oscillation between seriousness and a gag an apology of yours for like if you're taking something too seriously, you want to lighten it up by like making a joke of it? Yes, yeah. Like is there a part of you that felt while you were writing this book that you couldn't actually write about this movie seriously? Well, I would have no desire to. You know, I like, (laughs) uh, I mean, one of the things that I realized, one of the fun things about writing this book is that I realized it was probably going to be the book where the ratio of serious to gag as the highest I could achieve. I mean, you can't have continuous gags because you've got to have something to set up the gag. But I thought really, yeah, that was interesting to me to just make as joke intensive as I could. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Jeff Dyer, author of Broadsword Calling Danny Boy on Where Eagles Dare. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Deborah Eisenberg on the line with us today. Deborah Eisenberg, for me at least, a legendary short story writer. And her latest collection of short stories is Your Duck is My Duck. And Deborah is here to recommend a book for us. Deborah, what book are you going to recommend? Well, I'm going to recommend The Story of the Stone, which is actually five books. It's five volumes. Okay. And I'm a very, very, very slow reader. So if I'm recommending to you a five-volume book, you know I just have to love it. I adore (laughs) it. And I read it, I would say, just about a year ago. Of course, it took me a few months, but it's rare for me these days to say that I can't put something down, and I couldn't put it down. It is 18th century Chinese, a family saga, and much more than that. And it has everything, everything, everything you would want in a book. And it is both naturalistic and surrealistic and metaphysical and incredibly funny and unbelievably charming. And it really makes you think. And it's gorgeous. And the author was a man, I'm going to butcher this name, but it's something like Cao Shui Qin, C-A-O-X-U-Q-I-N, I think, The Story of the Stone. And the translation is absolutely uncanny. I don't know how anybody could have done it. The translator is David Hawkes. He translated the first three volumes and his son-in-law, I believe, translated the subsequent two. Wow. So how did you come to this book? Well, my sweetheart, who I've lived with for many, many years, studied Far Eastern history in school, and he recommended it to me decades ago, and I did read something called The Dream of the Red Chamber, 
which is, well, it's a translation of the first two volumes. And in most languages, the translation of this work is called The Dream of the Red Chamber. But that's only the first two volumes, and it's translated from the German. And I loved it back then, but I'd always sort of thought, oh, I'll read the whole thing one day. And I just, I don't know, I did. I'd finished my duck book, and so I picked it up and just devoted some time to it. And I should tell you that even though I think it's been the most popular and beloved book in China for a couple of hundred years now, the author died absolutely broke, unknown, unpublished, and drunk. Well, that sounds familiar. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> well, that sounds wonderful. Can you tell us the title again and the drunk, broke author? The title is The Story of the Stone, and I think it may only be available or most widely available in Penguin. So I'm sorry to say the paper sort of degrades as you're reading it, but it is really great. And the author, in my non-pronunciation, is Zhao Shui-Chin. Well, thank you so much, Deborah Eisenberg, for recommending that book for us. Thank you so much. Mm. Just run, get it. I might run and get it, actually. Oh, do. Oh, do. You won't be sorry. It does sound fantastic, uh, and I've never heard of it before. So we have been speaking with Deborah Eisenberg. Her latest collection is called Your Duck is My Duck. Thank you so much, Deborah. Thank you very, very much. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM. We now return to our conversation with Jeff Dyer, author of Broadsword Calling Danny Boy on Where Eagles Dare. Has there been anything that has tempted you toward reverence? Um, Where you, you sort of felt your knees buckle and say, oh, I might get there. Yes, I suppose. Well, I'm very deeply moved by things. So, for example... You know, I'm very moved by, oh, God, all sorts of things, you know, temples, all that kind of stuff. I'm always eager to go to sacred sites, but I, I'm moved very deeply by them. I think it was probably, maybe it was really important for me when I started to go to, to Burning Man, where I would have these profound experiences. But nothing about the atmosphere of Burning Man is conducive to reverence, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm. I think I became... I just really, I I realized that my life wouldn't be at all impoverished if I didn't have any reverence at all. But of course, goodness knows, I really want to retain my capacity for, as I was saying, loving and admiring. And also crucially, because I think what we were describing just now is a very English thing of making a serious point, then undermining it. But I don't want to go for that full-on English thing where basically you just go around the world taking the piss. It's important that my capacity for wonder remains intact and undiminished by my deep-seated desire to not undermine by my the way that you know laughter and jokes being funny make me so profoundly happy. Just in terms of reverence, I'm you know normally people come to films and they revere the actors in them. I would say as a mm. as a big draw for. Do they really revere them though? Well, maybe I'm not fully you know 
bring the whole meaning of the word revere. No, but, but you're right. The they, adjectives yeah. they use. Do yeah. they or do they mm-hmm. idolize them yeah, or they're they drawn? Okay, them. they're yeah, they're yeah. drawn they're drawn to films because of the actors mm. in them. Yeah. As opposed to yeah, the yeah. film as a whole. It's sure. like films are showcases for actors. And something I, that's so great about this book is the way you that Richard Burton, maybe more a little bit more than Clint Eastwood, is is the character in the film here, but he's also very much written about as the man and with mm. everything that was going on with him, you know, as he was making the film and he made the film basically because he was broke. Well, broke in the sort of multi-millionaire right. sense of the term. <laughs> <laughs> Too many boats that he had that he had yeah. bought. Um, I, I'm wondering for you with this film, was he a draw? Was he part of the reason why you liked this film so much, or was it more Eastwood? Or do do either of those actors? How do they figure into the equation? Yeah, I think uh, the the more honest answer would be neither of them. Uh, the real attraction for me was well, there were two things. One, it was a Second World War film. And the Second World War, because I was born in 1958, just so permeated every single aspect of of, of my childhood. So this was just a, a sort of the the kind of climax of that, really, and that it came out when I was 10. So Second World War, any film about the Second World War is of, still of automatic interest to me. Then the other, if we had to narrow it down to what was the name, it was because it was a, a, a screenplay by Alistair MacLean, you know, the first writer that I'd read. So I wasn't drawn to it because of Eastwood and Burton, but I think the pairing of them is so wonderful because it's really two kinds of acting we get there. The British theatrical acting with Burton with that wonderful voice where he does, it does sound like he's kind of speak, you know, he could read anything and it sounds like Shakespeare. The combination of that British theatrical tradition with Eastwood as a representative, I think, of American cinematic acting, which is so much bound up in you know, just just the way he moves, you know. And there are sequences in the film where I think this combination of the verbal and the and the active, it's really a very, very, it's a mesmerizing combination. I want to try to capture what it was like for you when you first Mm. saw it as a child? Because these are ways that you think about them and kind of longer traditions of transatlantic film and all of that type of stuff and acting styles. I mean, what was it like when you were there in the theater the first time? Oh, great question. Yeah, it was a a lot of fun. And it was also a completely immersive experience, I think. And I guess that's something that, you know, obviously there was a lot of action going on. But I think I was, you know, it really did look convincing as well. Um, despite the super saturated colors, of course. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, and despite everything in a way. But yeah, it was a fully immersive, you know, experience. Mm-hmm. Of course, also, crucially, seeing it on a, you know, a whopping great screen, you know, helped. But yeah, that's what it was, a fully immersive Second World War experience. And I really wasn't conscious, I don't think, at the age of 10, of who Burton and East. I mean, maybe I was slightly conscious of Burton as somebody who appeared on chat shows, but okay. but no, I don't. I, it was, yeah, it was at that point. It was independent of the the two the two great stars. And at that point, how was the World War Two sort of permeating your life? Mm, really good question. I mean, it permeated it in the sense that my life was saturated in it. It was everywhere. I mean, I was born in 1958. And the war was, you know, over. Rationing was over, although, of course, you know, rationing had gone on for a, for, a, for a long time. And a lot of the time was spent making those model aircraft, collecting those little soldiers. And then when I was about nine, I think, we started to have our British equivalent of G.I. Joe, you know, the foot, mm-hmm. the, uh, the foot tall 
doll that you would dress up in uniforms. There were all these comics, British ones, and then things like Our Fighting Forces and um, um, the, the American Imports. There's all these films, starting with those rather kind of stoic British ones, things like The Cruel Sea, with that great sequence where, you know, Jack Hawkins is on the bridge of the ship in his soaking wet polo neck. At a certain moment, a, a cheery rating comes up and says, more cocoa, sir. And at that exact moment, a torpedo <laughs> hits, the, hits the boat. And there, were, there were films like that and the Dam Busters, these rather, yeah, rather stoical British ones. And then I think what happened is that as the 60s wore on, so this kind of James Bond-like element mm. entered into the films. And we got more and more of these mission films whereby a handful of people would take on the whole of the German army. And I really, I mean, uh, Where Eagles Dare is the sort of climax mm. of that. The crucial thing is that, I mean, all I'm really saying is that the Second World War saturated my childhood and the Second World War as it then was, it really didn't have anything to do with uh, the Holocaust. It had nothing, Stalingrad didn't exist. It was just us and the Americans against the Germans and the Japanese. To be honest, the Second World War seemed a lot of fun. And it's crucial that I'm the that I was born in 1958 mm -hmm. because, of course, if I'd been a bit older, then the grim reality of uh, having survived the Blitz and of wartime privation and rationing would have acted as a counter to this quite exciting, constant cultural recreation of the Second World War. And did your parents ever talk about it, or no? Oh yeah, it was. In fact, both of my parents died without ever having been on an aeroplane, which is sort of inconceivable now. But my dad was sent to uh, India, um, you know, uh, just as the as the Second World War was ending, as part of the preparation for uh, uh, independence and partition, that kind of stuff. And what that and it's so uh, it's it's not unusual at all for working class men for their only experience of travel, of international travel, to be when they were sent sent somewhere, uh, you know, uh, uh, by, by the military. So that time in India had a great. Uh, impact on him but uh, i think even my parents they would you know that those two things which are so central to british identity surviving the blitz although it didn't directly affect them because they weren't um, they weren't living in london and also dunkirk i mean these are i can't emphasize enough how these are such founding things of you know when when churchill says you know about the battle of britain if the empire survives for a thousand years you know we'll still look back and say this was our finest hour now we're of con we're all of course conscious of all of the the lies built into the myth of the blitz and we know that you know all of this sort of stuff but here's the fact of the matter when i went to see dunkirk on imax to have a fully immersive experience i would say i saw i spent half the film not seeing it properly cuz tears were streaming down my face mm. you know it it's really the Second World War is, you know, we, we were pretty well uh, finished as a country after that, partly because we were bankrupted by having to pay you lot back for Lend-Lease. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm wondering, actually, the Dunkirk reference that you have to the film, I mean, um, and obviously the, the historical event, is interesting to me in terms of thinking about, because that film, the film Dunkirk, is really trying to, as you say, it's immersive, it's trying to almost in real time give you the experience mm. of being, for example, on that long dock where yeah, they're the like all just waiting to, yeah. to be hit or not hit. But that's not mostly how we see the type of action movies, war action movies that you're talking about when mm. you talk about something like Where Eagles Dare. So 
I'm wondering in some ways how you feel about contemporary action films mm. where the jump cuts, this is a thing that like now that every film has to be two plus hours, yeah. it's like we're actually kind of, I think quite boringly, like walked through all of the mm. transitions. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the difference just in the sensation of being in one of those films and then a kind of similarly staged action film from today. Yeah, well, uh, I think one of the the key things, and it's interesting with regard to Dunkirk, in that there was so little CGI in it. And I think for somebody of my generation, CGI is so entirely alienating. It just, you Mm. you enter this other universe where basically in CGI, the first thing that you get rid rid of is gravity. (laughs) You know, it's a a counter-gravity innovation, if you like. It's CGI in that that sense. Gravity is a very real force in Where Eagles Dare, (laughs) I think it's fair to say. I mean, action action films, if they're just action, they're just a bore to me. So, of course, going to the cinema now, it's a slight problem in that, I have to time my arrival in the theater quite well to avoid the, you know, the awful moronic previews of these moronic films which mm. leave you so pulverized and so deaf. So yeah, there's that. And but in terms of war films, of course recently we've had some very very sort of serious war films, so Saving Private Ryan, whatever you might think of the slight some of the ridiculousness of it, that opening sequence mm. of uh, Omaha Beach on D-Day. I mean, I can't really say this with any authority because I've never been in combat but goodness knows it makes you think that you know this yeah. this is what it might be like but you know even however impressive and immersive that is nothing for me can compare with seeing uh, documentary footage of the second world war so I think what happened for me in 19 you know the only time you know, I didn't realize what the second world war was really about until the release of uh, you know that great series in 1974 the, the world at war Mm-hmm. Have you seen They Shall Not Grow Old, where they oh, recolorized? Yes. I haven't seen it yet, but yeah. it's like, does that capture that kind of immersive experience? Mm. Well, that's interesting because, of course, that's about the First World War. Right, yes. So, crucially, the Second World War, war was for us uh, a form of uh, sort of play and entertainment, whereas in the background was this thing of the First World War, which existed solely in the realm of memory. But living memory, because, you know, whenever we'd go round to my friend Gary Hunt's house, his granddad would drop his trousers, not in a sort of Michael Jackson-like way, but in order to show us his shrapnel wounds from the First World War. Oh, okay. There was that living, fleshy memory of it. But also in every town and village in, in Britain and France, there are war memorials. It existed entirely in the realm of memory. And I think what that Peter Jackson thing does, very, very interestingly... It brings the First World War out of the realm of memory and makes it look like what? Ah, incredibly like the Second World War. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Um, you've written extensively on music and photography and film. And am I missing any? Oh, there's, yeah. There's. Uh, it's like when Charles Mingus introduces Eric Dolphy on one of those uh, albums and he sort of bassoon, oboe, flute. This <laughs> right. and he says, Did I miss anything? <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and literature. And, and uh, I'm, I'm wondering, with your experiences with uh, this book and with Zona, were, have those been particularly generative for you or more fun to write or any different mm. than, than writing about other forms of, of art? Yeah, I think these two books really were a lot of fun. The Tarkovsky book, was a lot of fun because I was doing it as a way of bunking off from the book I was contracted to write. 
but I just had started sort of, I just hit upon this tone that I really had great fun writing about, you know, St. Tolstoyevsky in this jokey way. And this was a lot of, uh, a lot of fun as well. I think because, really, because, okay, there's the, the film, you know, that's going along. And just the freedom that gave me to just really enjoy the stylistic flourishes and stuff. Whereas the stuff that's painful for me when I'm writing is, you know, having to make stuff up and invent stuff. So it's almost as though, you know, I'm like so many writers, I really love revising stuff. And the existence of the film meant that the first draft had been done for me. <laughs> I I'm surprised to hear that you didn't, you tune out when somebody at a, at a party or something tells you about the plot of a movie. Because while I was reading this, I was like, I wonder if this started as a bit at a party where somebody had asked you a question and you said, let me tell you about this movie. No, it, uh, it didn't start like that. But if I do tell anyone about a film, I never try to lobby on behalf of the, the plot because that's such a, that's, you know, that just doesn't do it for me either. Mm-hmm. Are there any film writers or critics who you particularly admire and whose like kind of strategies for translating film to prose you found generative for your own writing? Yes, absolutely. I think it's it was a con- probably a condition for me of writing these two books that David Thompson uh, had not written much about Tarkovsky or or about this because I love David Tom David Thompson's biographical dictionary of the movies now in its sixth edition. I think mm. is for me not just uh, not just hands down the greatest book ever written on film. It's one of the great great works of literature of our time, and it's gonna its reputation will grow and grow. So. I just love David Thompson so, so much. And I just feel so glad that he's left this bit of space for me. Although I'm conscious when I mention at the end of this book that I might write about another film, Point Blank. He has written a lot about, uh, you know, there's a famous passage in the dictionary about Angie Dickinson, who's the female lead. He's written a lot about Lee Marvin and also about John Borman. So that might be the time when I really finally have to get in bed with David Thompson. What a thought. <laughs> Maybe that, well, that the book can be about that as well. Like, what yeah. a beautiful place to end this conversation. <laughs> we'll look forward to that. Perfect. Uh, we very much look forward to that. Thank you so much for coming to join us today. We've been speaking with Jeff Dyer, author most recently of Broadsword Calling Danny Boy on Where Eagles Dare. Thank you all so much. That was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.